to a small room in Bedford and I went there as a young policeman and I can remember listening to this message about salvation and I'd always imagined that God was up in heaven so kind of waiting around to see if I would ever get interested. And during the Bible study, which was on a difficult topic, but during this Bible study I began to realise that God wasn't up in heaven waiting for me to get round to trusting him. I was down here, and if the Lord just let me go on in my present way, I was finished. And I can remember that sense of desperation that if the Lord just left me alone because of the way I lived, I was, I was utterly lost. And it was then that I asked the Lord to, to save me. I realised he had died on that cross for me. And it's during that time I realised that even if there had been an infinite number of sinners committed an infinite number of sins, what Christ did at that cross of Calvary was enough. And how happy I was that day. I can remember the relief of it. Now, those of you that know me will realize that jumping and leaping and praising God is not exactly my style. In fact, the other day someone walked in to a meeting that Colette and I were at, was at, and uh, I walked over and hugged him. And it became a talking point. Dave Harding <laughs> hugged someone, you know, this exuberant expression of joy. But I can remember that moment of relief when I realised sin was forgiven. I wonder if you, you know something of, of that, the, the sheer joy. I remember the first time I really read uh, Pilgrim's Progress and uh, as Christian carrying that huge burden on his back, he comes up to Calvary's hill, doesn't he? And he looks, and as he looks at the cross, that burden falls away. But he doesn't just take one glance. Bunyan catches it so well when he says he looked and he looked until the springs of his eyes opened and he wept with grief for his sin and with joy for salvation. Isn't it wonderful, that experience of coming to know the Lord? And it's grace, isn't it? It's free, it's full, and it's forever. It's a wonderful thing that grace is like that. And it's all based in that work of Calvary. We sometimes say to people, don't we, if we can contribute anything to our salvation, whatever is Jesus Christ doing on that cross. Whatever is happening there, if we can do the slightest thing to contribute to our salvation. And yet, when we get saved, of course, people, when they realise that it's free like that, some Muslims have said this to me, and other people have said, well, if you're saved, and your sins are all forgiven, and you're justified, and you're never going to be condemned, you can do what you like, can't you? And the temptation is to say, no. But what we ought to say is, yes. Uh, but that means you can, you can do what you please. And our temptation is to say, no. But we ought to say, yes. Because when God saves us, he doesn't just deal with the things we've done. He deals with what we are. And what we are is sinners and he gives us a new heart with a new desire. It was even there in the Old Testament 
I delight, it says, in your commandments. This, this coming to know the Lord and this change of heart, this wonderful passion. So you can say, yes, I can do what I want and thank God he's made me want to do what's right. I can do what I please and what, I, what pleases me is to do what pleases him. And so we can come and say that. And so today, in what I've got to say, it's, uh, they offered me Romans 6, 1 to chapter 7, verse 6. And I said, no, it's not enough. I want Romans 6 to 8, please. Uh, so it says 11 o'clock, finish. Um, I'll do my best. But we've got three chapters to look at. And you all know, probably, that Romans has six parts to it. I was always taught five, but I've added one. And uh, it starts by talking about our sin, and then it talks about salvation, salvation by grace through faith. But the bit that was missed out, it's amazing to me when I first heard this, was substitution. That it moves on in chapter 5 to talk about the fact that Christ was, went to the cross in place of and on behalf of others. And then it comes to sanctification, which is the bit we're looking at, before it looks at God's sovereignty and ends up looking at the fact that we're meant to serve the Lord with our faculties and just come to the Lord in a major decisive moment and present ourselves, our bodies, as living sacrifices once and forever, consecrating ourselves to him. So we're looking at that bit that's called sanctification because if, we're, if God is at working us, we're living under grace. It isn't just that grace saved us. Grace is saving us. Grace is sanctifying us. And so I want to look at that. And uh, the way we're going to look at it is under the four questions that these three chapters imply. The first one is given to us. Because the great question it begins with is, if you're saved by grace... How can you continue in sin? How is it possible that you think if God has forgiven you, you can carry on in sin? And he says you can't do it. It's inconsistent. If you think you get saved and then you sort of later on, some way down the road, you've come to Christ as Saviour and then sometime down the road you'll get round to thinking about Christ as Lord, you haven't understood salvation at all. Somehow you've really got on the wrong track there because we come to Christ firstly as Lord and then as Saviour. We come to him as Lord and Saviour. That's how he's always described. Repentance is the first step, not the third step or second step. It's repent and believe the gospel. And that means lordship is the first issue to be confronted. Will you receive Christ to interfere in your life and to transform it and change it. And so we come to this first question. How can we sin? And the apostle gives us three uh, things to think about. He says, firstly, the ceremony of baptism. You were baptized, surely. And there, when you were baptized, what did your baptism speak of? It spoke of the fact that you died. The old Jew's gone. And there's a new you that it lives, and your baptism speaks about that. You were buried with him in baptism. You were fully associated with his death to sin. 
And when he rose again, a new you came out because you were united with him in his death and you were united with him in his resurrection. And so he says, if you think you can carry on as you used to live, it's inconsistent with the fact that when you got saved, you then thought about baptism. Baptism spoke about the fact you were a new person. He then goes on to describe the life of a slave. And he says about this slave, here's this slave, I don't know, he's a terrible taskmaster, he's serving, and uh, how can he ever be free from this terrible taskmaster? Well, the answer is, of course, he could die. And if he dies, and the taskmaster comes on at his death, the link with his old taskmaster is broken. The story is told of uh, Augustine and he had a girlfriend. He was a very immoral man before he was saved. And one day after he was saved, he was walking down the street and there was his girl. I think uh, she was uh, called Monica or something like that. But anyway, we'll call her Monica for the sake of my memory. And there she is. And what was her name? Oh, Monica was mum. So now it's his girlfriend. Anyway, whoever it was, we'll call her Jane. Anyway, sorry Jane if you're here. Anyway, Jane was there and he's walking along the road. And this girl says, hello Augustine, it is me, Jane. And Augustine said, hello Jane, but it's not me, Augustine. He'd been saved. And so there was a new man walking down the street and he refused to be associated with his former way of life. Are you like that? That from your conversion you refuse to be known as the same person who got up to those things beforehand. This slave dies and now what does he do? It says, don't come and present yourself as slaves of unrighteousness, but come and present yourselves as slaves of God. You can imagine it, can't you? The man gets killed and then suddenly he gets raised from the dead And can you imagine him going back to his old boss? His old boss comes along and says, do this. He says, no, no, I've died, that's over. What an idiot he would be if he went back to his boss and said, I've been raised again, so here I am. Crazy. You were a slave of sin. You have died in Christ. Now go to God and say, here I am to serve you. All the faculties of my body, my eyes, ears, My mouth, my emotions, my affections, my will, my hands, my feet, they're yours. What do you want me to do with them today to serve you? Because I'm presenting myself as a slave to God. The third uh, thing he... I've lost it here. The third uh, type of person... Can you move it on if I... Thank you. The third thing is he talks about a wife. Here's this wife. And her husband, what type of husband is he? Maybe a terrible husband, but she's got to, he comes along and says, do this, do this, do this. Well, if through death she is free to marry another, it says, it's an illustration for us, through death, the death of our first husband, 
We are now free to remarry. And it says, but now you're married to Christ. You've now got the most wonderful husband. What wouldn't you do for him? You'd serve him gladly. And the idea, the three illustrations that Paul gives to us, how can we sin? These are illustrations of what's happened to us. We've died to sin. And our baptism speaks of it. It's inconsistent for us to carry on in wrongdoing. We were slaves to sin, but now we've got a new wonderful master and we can present ourselves to him. He's a kind master. Come to me, he says. All of you who are weak and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me because I'm gentle. Christ is not severe with us. And he's like a new and wonderful and loving husband. But chapter 7, verse 7 moves on to imply a second question. However, can we stop? How can we sin is the first question. It's inconsistent. But how can we stop? This chapter has blessed me and helped me more, uh, apart from Psalm 51, more probably than any other chapter in the Bible. Because as I've read about this old man, Paul, as he wrote this, and I realised... As an old person, he said, in me there dwells no good thing. He said, the good things that I want to do, I don't do them. The things I disapprove of, I end up doing them. And he says, woe is me. He says, a wretched man that I am. And he describes himself in these terms. But he does make a distinction. He says, before conversion, sin completely dominated me. It reigned in me. It did some terrible things uh, to me. And uh, I'm going to abandon this, uh, the the thing, uh, pressing the buttons. Before conversion, sin completely dominated me. It did all kinds of things. It confirmed how bad I was at heart. It influenced my sinfulness. When I learned a commandment, what did sin do? It took hold of the commandment and instead of it giving me something I wouldn't do, it stirred up in me the desire to rebel. But what about since conversion? And the answer is that since conversion, sin does continue to indwell me. And he recognises this painful experience that God, who could have perfected us at once for reasons known to him in his wisdom, have left us with an indwelling sinfulness, have left us in a kind of spiritual schizophrenia. Because what we've got is this desire to do what's wrong and this desire to do what's right. Do you know something of this? Anyone would think living the Christian life should have been pretty easy, shouldn't it? You know, you get saved and then you do what's right. I mean, it's not really rocket science, isn't it? You don't need Professor McIntosh down here with his PhD and with his doctorate and with his professorship to explain to you uh, about it. It doesn't take him to understand it or any of the other clevers here. You know, the idiots amongst us can understand you get saved and you get on with living the Christian life. It's pretty simple stuff. And then we go out and experience this warfare This internal warfare. Paul says, I'm carnal. 
He says, what I'm doing, I don't understand. He's confused about himself. Why am I still like I am? Have you ever asked yourself that question? You go on and you do something, you think, whatever made me, go and do that. And so he's speaking now. How can we stop? And at the end of it, seeing all this warfare and all this trouble going on, he cries out in desperation, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He says that in chapter 7:24, doesn't he? And then he says the words, I thank God. And implied following it, there's a dash put after it, but the implication is, because of what he then says, is he will. I thank God there is an answer to it. The answer's not in me. I, can, I have this Christian life to live and this indwelling sin and the confusion that it creates. Oh, wretched man, I'm crying out for help. Who is going to help me in this, this contradiction that I am to myself? And he says, he will. The God who saved you by grace daily gives grace and you go on and occasionally you have victories, don't you? And you say no when you should and you say yes when you should. But it seems that more often you have failures. But do you know, part of the victory of grace is that failure isn't final, is it? Part of the victory and the work of grace and living by faith and living under grace is this. You go down and you get up. All right? You fall down, but you don't stay down. It's grace that lifts you up. I thank God, he says. He will, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, he says, with the mind, his main faculty, he's serving the law of God. But with the flesh, the law of sin. And he recognizes the seat of all that he is, is serving God. God has worked in the heart, in his heart, in his mind, in his emotions, in his affections, in his will. And he longs to do what's right. But there's a kind of malfunction, a bit like Windows 10. You know, (laughs) there's a malfunction between pressing the keys and seeing what you think you should see on the screen. So it is with us. There's this longing to serve the Lord, and yet it all gets fuzzy when it comes to action, doesn't it? And there are failures, and there are mistakes. Well, the third great question that's asked starts at chapter 8, and uh, based on this cry, how, uh, who's going to deliver me? We start in chapter 8 with this idea of, well, how can we succeed? Where's the remedy? We are saying, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And the answer is, God's going to deliver me. Well, how will we succeed then? However is it possible when I'm like I am? Weak, ignorant, prone to sin. Where's the answer going to lie? And the apostle in chapter 8 begins to point this out. And he shows us that the first, that the main way, referring to it, at least three times, is that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You have help 
from heaven. Christ said that the Holy Spirit is another comforter. And when he used that word another, the idea is another of the same kind. He could have used another word, a different comforter, another but different one. But he used a word which means another of the same kind. And so the Holy Spirit comes and he says, I will come to you. So when the Holy Spirit comes, he's the spirit of life. Now that should encourage us. Because it means that when the Holy Spirit comes in, we have a new life and a new energy. We can live this Christian life. You can live it. You may feel because of habits in your life, because of things you've done, you may feel still bound. But you can say, oh wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? And the answer comes immediately. He will. How? By sending the Spirit. And by the way, I love the fact that Paul, by the Spirit, wrote chapter 8, verse 1, just after he'd written chapter 7. Because he immediately says, looking at the contradictions in his life, he immediately says, there is now, while I'm still in this confused, split personality condition as a Christian, it's now that there's no condemnation, right today when I let the Lord down or whether I succeed or whether I do what's right or whether I do what's wrong, right now, this grace means God is not from heaven going, you let me down, you're in, you know, this idea that God looks from heaven and accuses us for our failures. No, today there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it also tells us what walking according to the Spirit is. You know, people, may, you may think that walking according to the Spirit is kind of walking that sanctified, holy life where you never make a mistake. Walking according to the Spirit is delighting in the law of God in the mind while battling with the desires and failures and weaknesses of the body, of the rest of you. It's this conflict that's going on that is walking in the spirit. <coughs> facing the conflict and living it out. So in chapter 8, how can I succeed? I have the spirit of life. He's then called the spirit of Christ because it's Christ who's come. He's then called the spirit, if it will come, the spirit of adoption. Because the lovely thing about this work of the Holy Spirit is he doesn't just kind of zap sanctification into us. He comes making us aware of our relationship with God, causing us to know that as children we can go with our failures the way we let down the Lord and appeal to him as our father. You know, he is no longer a taskmaster. He's our father and you take your failures to him and say, Dad, I'm so sorry, I'm not talking to God now, but you say to, to, to him the equivalent of Dad or Father, I've, I've let you down. And your dad doesn't say to you, my dad never said, though I let him down untold number of times, he never said, get out the family. When I went to him with that sense of failure, he was so kind to me about it. And that's how the Lord is so kind to us. We have the spirit of adoption. And we can cry out in our prayers. So you see, 
There are thoughts. The apostle goes on to say, yeah, there's pain. There's trouble. There's difficulty. There's weakness. There are problems. But he goes on then to say, after that, that there is perseverance. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, we keep going in this hope. He adds to that, there's prayer. Don't neglect it. If you've got something that you really struggle with, tell me. Do you kind of hide away from it? Or do you make it an issue where you do take it to the Lord? You've got a problem, something that's habitual, something that's a real difficulty in your life. Is it something, without magnifying it through prayer, do you take the burden of it and lay it as your area where you need daily help? Do you take it to the Lord in prayer? But there's a plan. That's where it gets to in chapter 8. It says here in uh, uh, verse 28, we know that all things work together for good to those who who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. There's a plan. How shall we succeed? The reason we succeed is because God does have a plan. And what is the plan? Those he foreknew... He predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he called, he glorified. How will we succeed? The answer is, God is on our side. God is not against you. He didn't put you on probation when you came to Christ, you know. He's on your side. He's urging you along, he's helping you along, he's lifting you up, he's receiving you back, all because of grace. It's wonderful. I nearly jumped for joy then. But the point is, it's wonderful to think of grace and how it works in day-to-day living. Well, the last thing is how can we fail? This is how Paul ends this little section What shall we say to these things, he says? If God is for us, who can be against us? When you look at your Christian life and you think, God is on my side. Who can ruin that? Who can spoil that? And he says, he immediately says, no one can charge you with a crime that God has forgiven. He says it there, doesn't he? Who... Who, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son. Look to Calvary and know this. You may let the Lord down 70 times, seven times, the same offence in one day. And if the Lord tells us to forgive it, when you come back to him on the 490th time that day, he welcomes, he forgives. That's what he's like. No one can charge you with a crime that he has pardoned. But more than that, no one can condemn you for a crime that, God has, that Christ has paid for at the cross. How often we go through our Christian lives and we carry the kind of guilt memories of the past, don't we? We think back, we let the Lord down. I know how it works out because I've, I've lived it through. You know, you have a bad day. You get up, you don't have your quiet time, you rush through a muttered prayer at at work, someone accuses you of something, you make an excuse, 
The boss says, tell them I'm out. And you actually say, he's out. You know? And uh, you look at the day, at the end of the day, you look back and you think, that was rubbish. And the next day, and you feel guilty, and you feel, well, the Lord doesn't love me so much today. I've really done the bad. And the next day, you get up, you have two-hour quiet time, three if you're really good, but you have a two-hour quiet time, and you go out and you give away a hundred of Roger's tracks and get a letter of commendation, which he gives out for, for, you know, well done, thou good and faithful track giver. You know, and you get home at the end of the day, you're on top of the world. You're no more loved that day than the day before, no less loved the day before than the day following. That isn't how it works, and we need to get out of that attitude and think afresh. But the first question, therefore, when we think about how can we fail, is if God is for us, who can be against us? But the second question is, who will separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus? You live an ongoing sinful life. Sin indwells you, but the Spirit indwells you. That's what he's told us. You cannot fail. And he says, he describes the things that could happen. (coughs) Tribulation, distress, persecution, verse 35. No, undesirable things can't separate you from it. And then he says uh, uh, down here, Death and life, that's unavoidable. They can't separate you from the love of Christ. Then he says, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, the invisible forces that you don't understand can't separate you from that love. And then finally, the unknowable, things present and things to come. None of it, height, depth, nor any other creative thing is able to separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Friends, we've been saved by grace. But never forget, we are being saved by grace. And this terrible dilemma that we face of indwelling sin and the indwelling spirit creating this terrible war and the terrible sense that We owe it to Christ in one sense to live this holy life and yet we don't. And we carry huge burdens and some of us unnecessarily carry ongoing sense of utter failure and unworthiness. We need to come to terms with the fact we are failures, we are unworthy and that Jesus Christ did come into the world to save sinners. People say, I qualify often been said, I qualify. We qualify as much after we've trusted Christ as we did before, if not more. We need the Lord. But we cannot fail, you know. A lot of people have this idea that you sort of live life through and as you go through the storms of life, the flag gets ripped off and then the sails get torn and then One of the masts goes overboard and then uh, the ship starts taking water and somehow you're desperately hoping you'll get into harbour. And at last there it is and just before the boat sinks you manage to steer into the safety of harbour. 
No. The Bible says that God's people will be flourishing in old age. The idea of the Bible is this. We will sail into the harbour of heaven, flags flying. It will be a jubilant entry. The ship will make it. And it's all because we are living under grace. Grace. You were saved by grace. You are being saved by grace. And it will be grace when you get there. Oh, that we might really grasp the truth of this. When Christ died on the cross, it wasn't just to pardon the past. It was to sustain you and to keep you and to get you safely home. And you'll get there by his grace.